the basic kind of thrust of this talk, and I'm going to leave a lot of space for questions because I think that's really important, is about, I think for many of us, our experience in living the faith with others is that if you have people that are like fallen away or of other faith backgrounds or have no religious background at all, there can be such like a wall or a disconnect. Uh, like in many people's like, minds, the idea of living as a Catholic in the modern world is almost like going back to the Middle Ages. Like it's a crazy kind of retrograde behind the times thing. And they have a sense of, like many people genuinely have like an experience of religiosity, an experience of something, of having a moment of encountering a something, but not really knowing what that is or what to do with it. So like, and then it can be such a wall. So part of the, the purpose of this, what I wanted to do, and I like, I've actually really appreciated the chance to do this because I've been like kind of working on these things for years, especially being a chaplain on a college campus where we rub shoulders with a lot of different people of different faith backgrounds in different countries. And so these questions have been really on my mind. So I really enjoyed uh, trying to like synthesize all of the things that uh, we're gonna talk about tonight. So I'm gonna kind of, uh, it's gonna be a little bit dense, but hopefully accessible, and there'll be a lot of space for questions at the end. But we're gonna just talk about first how we got to where we are today of people's understanding of religiosity. Uh, and the real desire for this is to really understand and appreciate the difficulty of the modern world and actually to have a heart for people in this. So not at all as a point of judgment or condemnation or looking down, but actually really trying to like understand and walk and love other people within this and understand the difficulty. And then what we're called to do in this. First, just two like kind of very quick stories or anecdotes that really put me on to this question. And the first was my first semester at Georgia Tech, I went to this party, uh, a Christmas party, and I thought it was a Christmas party. It was a, a party. And it was a party that like a priest probably shouldn't have been at. And I didn't realize it until I got on the elevator and there were some super drunk people in the elevator. I was like, oh, I shouldn't be going to this. But I had this super fascinating conversation with this guy who's very drunk. Uh, <laughs> we were just talking and he was basically like, he's like, oh yeah, like I grew up Hindu. And he's like, all religions are the same, it's great, it's just like good energy, you know? And, and he was like, he was very nice, but he was also like, yeah, like it's all just kind of the same. So I very gently was like, hey, like, how much, just out of curiosity, like how much have you studied, like your faith? How much have you studied Hinduism? How much do you know about it? And he goes, actually, I don't know anything about it. And I was like, how much do you know about Christianity? And he goes, honestly, not a thing. And I'm like, what about Judaism? How much do you know about Judaism? He's like, I don't know. And I kind of like went through all the major religions. And I was like, it's interesting that like there is this conclusion made that it's all kind of the same thing when you actually haven't studied really any of them. And that was fascinating in that part. And you'll hear a lot today. There is a, uh, part of it is a paralysis, and we'll talk about this, but like a paralysis in front of life of all of the choices, all of the options all of the different ways that we can live, it's like the Cheesecake Factory menu, where there's so many options, you're paralyzed in front of it, right? Like life has so many like options and different thing, avenues and things like that, and it creates a paralysis. But it's almost easier to have a position of, it's all the same. But it, it takes the form of enlightenment, like I know these things and I know what's going on and it's all basically the same. But in reality, it isn't the fruit of work. Like he hadn't studied any of them, right? And so that's one of the kind of difficulties, one of the things that I've noticed. The second one was, 
I apologize to my students that have heard probably this story before, but probably five years ago, I had a wedding in Italy and I was flying back. And uh, the guy next to me on the plane ended up being a male model. And he had had like this big photo shoot in Milan. And we just like were getting along really well. Like having this like incredible conversation. And we were connecting through Turkey. And we were, he was like, do you want to get coffee? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And we kept talking. And one, he was like, he was like, this is so fascinating because he said, I just three, day, three days ago asked the question, is there a God? Because he's like, I've arrived. He's like, I like, he's like, I'm in Milan. I'm doing these photo shoots. I have been with all of these women in the last week. He gave me more details that I did not ask for, right? But he was like, I like, he's like, I've been with all this, and yet I woke up this morning, and there is this like hollowness and emptiness. And he's like, just three days ago, I was asking, is there a God? Because some, like, I've arrived, I've made it, I've achieved what I desire, and yet like something is missing. And I'm like, that's interesting. Be faithful to that. Let's talk about that. Like, like, be faithful to this question of what is missing. We're getting on the same flight back to Atlanta. And we're at the gate talking some more. And these three guys hear us talking. And they step in as well. And it was these three, like, Baptist missionaries. Really nice guys. Great guys. These three Baptist missionaries. And they start to talk. And they're basically almost immediately kind of confronting him. Like, whoa, whoa, bro. Like, you don't believe that Jesus is God? And starting to like immediately try to get him to like accept Jesus in that moment. And I watched this guy just like shut down. Like I watched it happen where like the defenses came up and he just like shut down. And before we were having this like really beautiful, alive, like in front of his real questions of life. And then these like three great college guys uh, in front of it, like he just shut down. And I'm just getting angrier and angrier because we got separated and I'm watching him just like endure the storm of like scripture quotes and everything like happening. And again, these were, these were great guys. Uh, this is part of like the complexity of it. So we get on the plane, those Baptist missionaries are like a road to, uh, behind me and to the left. And I'm praying, I'm so mad uh, at all of this. And I was like, man, like we were getting somewhere and it's like all of it is ruined. And the Lord just said very clearly, he was like, actually like the real problem is you don't love those guys. Dang it, you're right. <laughs> so they had an MDC between them, so I was like, I walked up, I was like, hey, at some point on the flight, like, can I just sit down and hear you guys' story? And they were like, yeah, absolutely. So I waited like four hours because I needed to calm down and like, <laughs> a little bit of wine and just like, <laughs> so then I went and like sat in between all of them and I was just like, tell me your story, like, tell me like who you are. And they shared a beautiful story of conversion and of like them meeting Christ and they were living the like domestic church kind of thing. This like they live church and community together and all of these things. And like, like a beautiful conversion story. And I was basically like, hey, like what you're sharing is really beautiful, but like you have to understand that guy over there, like his first question now is whether or not God exists. Like you can't skip steps. Uh, and like whenever you were coming after him like that, like he was beginning to like shut down. And that's like not good and not helpful. And the guy was actually pretty receptive of it. It was interesting. Uh, he was actually pretty open. But the starting point was like hearing each other's stories. So I, I share like those two stories of kind of getting at a little bit of what we're seeing today. Uh, there's this great line from Walker Percy. I'm going to quote him a lot, and I'll mention a specific resource from him at the end. Where in the movie Goer, his novel he wrote in 1961, he says, uh, In fact, I have only to hear the word God, and a curtain comes down in my head. 
like as soon as somebody mentions God or Jesus, like, he's like a curtain comes down in my head and I lose interest, right? The question is, is why? So I want to like rip through how did we get to where we are, to where uh, the Catholic faith and like structured faith, Christianity, religiosity doesn't make sense to people. Uh, and so a little bit of historical and then a lot of stuff that has to do with like being in America. Um, the first thing is there was a real weariness after the religious wars. If you look at the Hundred Years War and everything going on and the questions of dogma between Catholicism, Protestantism, everything going on, like many people were died, like it, it was a really complicated thing, but there is such a weariness in front of it. And there is this exasperation almost of, look, can we just agree on some basic things and then just get along? Remember every time us, I was one of five, and every time my mom would be like, can't we all just get along? You know, this like, guys, like, can we just set everything aside and just get along? Like it's such a, a desire. So there was this thing of like the weariness in front of the religious questions and people basically being like, we're not gonna get the answers. We're not, like uh, Dewey, like the Dewey Decimal System, he was an American pragmatist, and his basic point was like, look, people have been asking the religious questions throughout history. We don't have any answers for them. Like nobody's really gotten to the bottom of it. So maybe the noble thing to do is to set it aside and just try to be a good person. And that's like what American pragmatism is. It's almost like, look, no one's gonna get there, so just set it aside and try to make things a little bit better. Um, and so that's one of the first things is this weariness in front of the religious question. Right? The second thing is in like the Industrial Revolution and also the progress of science, they were watching like science uh, and technology advance at a rapid pace. And yet it seemed like philosophy and theology weren't moving at the same pace. And there became this great hope that we could solve so many of our problems through scientific and technological progress. And there was a great optimism about that. That ended pretty much at World War I. Uh, we see like new waves of it throughout, but the discovery of, this is what like, J.R. Tolkien writes about so beautifully is, like, how, how destructive, uh, like the hope of technology ended up becoming something that made us more alone and destructive than ever. Not that it's a bad thing, that's not what we're saying, right? But like recognizing its potential to dehumanize us in a very real way. So this, this thing of science and technology advancing in a rapid state, and because of that, this splintering of faith and reason, and reason becoming like pure reason as an ideal, separated from faith as a legitimate form of knowing. That we can actually know things through faith, and it is a proper instrument that needs to be used correctly. And the more that that gets fragmented, the more that there are these huge divisions. And we live this in America in a particular way because in America its founding is like a, uh, uh, like a Protestant fundamentalism of almost a like just like the Bible and that's it. And then a like post-enlightened rationalism, right? Of the like deists and those that are like, yeah, there's something, but he's not around. And so like use your reason and only like live what, you can, what you're certain that you can know. And we are sons and daughters of that, and that becomes a really fragmented thing. And I've watched so many of my friends that haven't had like, the full breadth of the Catholic heritage feel like, and I'm thinking of one friend in particular where we would sit up at night and talk about this, and he was basically, his position was like, either I like believe the thing that I grew up with that I love and I see the good of it and I turn my brain off, or I go with like what I'm studying in philosophy, but I know that I'm losing something beautiful. And so many people actually feel that like being almost like ripped apart, right? Between like the brain and one's experience of something beautiful. 
So that's another factor in this as well. Um, the other thing is, is in the development as well of the understanding of mental health and all and like the understanding of like trauma and all of these things and understanding how uh, certain things can be bad and like not healthy, there becomes a real question of does religious structure actually encourage bad mental health, right? And is it, and maybe even the positive effects of religion are actually just good mental health. Was it something that was actually just like the good effects of psychology and not actually something real? That becomes a real question as well. Um, the other thing is the idea of the church as, yeah, like being antiquated or kind of behind the times. Every generation hands on some sort of proposal, what life is and what life is for. Just by like living, we propose something. My friends that have kids talk about like uh, how their kids at some point imitate them. And it becomes almost an examination of conscience. So suddenly they start repeating back the lyrics of songs and they're like, Oh, that song's actually not good, you know? You don't discover it until your child is saying the words aloud. And then you're like, oh, this is a problem. Children should not be quoting Little Yachty. Uh, yeah. uh, that's another factor as well, though, is every generation receives something. And if what they're handed on seems to be just you do it for the sake of doing it, like pray, pay, obey, like that kind of mentality, you recognize the insufficiency of that. One of the big problems as well is the separation of faith from life's needs. And by that I mean the relationship between the faith and the question of life. Like what are we living? For me the strongest example of this is there's this comedian I'm really struck by named Mike Birbiglia. And I saw his most recent, I don't know if his stand-up special is out yet, but he talks about uh, his like first time of really like struggling with the faith was when he was in college they had a family friend that died and died pretty tragically. And he's like, before, everybody, when somebody died, they would be like, he's in a better place, or she's in a better place, all of these things, right? And they said the same things. But after the funeral mass, he grew up Catholic, everyone got really, really drunk. And he said it was the first time he ever saw his parents get drunk, like really drunk. And he was like, oh, you guys actually aren't certain. You actually don't know what's going on, like what's going to happen after death. Like, you're almost doing this as a way to protect yourself from the real questions. And that is what actually caused, very tragically, his rift with the faith and drifting away from it. And actually, like, it's interesting here, now he's in his, like, 40s, and his most recent special is about, like, reevaluating these questions. Like, people hit a certain point where life forces you to look at these questions. And one of the tragedies is, is if what they've been handed on is a bad version or an inadequate version of the faith or faith that isn't relevant to life's needs, they reject it from the outset. Like, yeah, that's great, but like I was part of that and it's not helpful. That's another aspect of this that's like really, really tragic. The other thing is the vast, like in the development of science and technology, the vastness of the cosmos, there is this experience of uh, in the bigness of things, that nothing actually matters, and we're so small as to be insignificant. You see this particularly in like the most recent movie that won the Oscar, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. In like the idea of the multiverse, there is a sense of therefore nothing matters. That's the line that keeps popping up throughout, is in the bigness and the confusion of things, nothing matters. What's fascinating is that part of that movie is, well, like what saves them is, is family like the love of a husband and wife and the love of the mother mother for a daughter. And so it's like like people in the modern world live a really
really confusing thing of nothing matters, but also this relationship matters to me, right? What do you do with that? Like, how do you, like, and so, like, even the best that, this is a movie that won the Oscar, and it's a pretty, like, you know, there's some really inappropriate stuff in it, but it's a pretty striking movie as far as the question of the human heart and the fact that modernity really doesn't have anything to propose. There isn't a proposal. It's basically like, I don't know. Like, nothing matters, but also family matters, right? And I, I try to really pay attention to, like, for the sake of my students and the people that I walk with, what's going on in, like, the movies and shows and books and things like that, just to, like, understand. Because culture always offers a proposal a direction. This is the path. And what we're experiencing today is a paralysis of there's something but I don't know, so good luck. Find your way. Eat your crab leg. Whatever that is, right? Um, like that, that is the difficult thing. And then along with that, the other paralyzing thing is it's when you encounter the diversity of religions and all of the different cultures and cultural proposals, it seems pretty dang arrogant to say that you have the truth, right? When you really encounter whole other ways of living, it seems so arrogant to say, I have the truth. And so, like, that as well, and, like, the world's opening up and encountering all of these different things, there is this very real question that I hear all the time of, like, how could we pop, like, how could I have just, like, shrugged into the truth? I grew up with this, and it's true, like, what are the odds of that, you know? A very honest and fair question, right? So it seems like to claim to have the truth is utter arrogance. We're gonna circle back to that, but that is another part of it as well. Um, another part is uh, like religion sometimes being hijacked by politics, right? Uh, what's interesting is that uh, both like political parties uh, actually recognize that every president that's won in the last 40 years has won the Catholic majority. And so there is like a big like marketing towards Catholics specifically to basically be like, if you are this person of faith, you align with this particular political party. And whenever religiosity like gets smashed down to politics, people feel uh, like used and manipulated and they may like not agree with the whole thing. And that makes religion seem like uh, like a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? Uh, the other thing is like like the modern world being mediated, and mediated in the sense of like something between you and reality, very often screens, right? Uh, there is such an experience of like terror today in front of life, and uh, like and, and underneath that is this sense that like life isn't ultimately good, and so it's better to like hunger down and to hide. There's a number of factors that contribute to that, right? But uh, I would argue our like relationship with technology in an unhealthy way. Again, not saying technology is bad, but an unhealthy relationship with technology again mediates reality into a sense of we think we know when we're not actually living it. Uh, I'll skip that example. The other thing is uh, the the like problem of words having lost their meaning. Walker Percy really helped me get understand this, is that words lose their meaning over time. We talk about like buzzwords, right? At some point it's signified, but it no longer signifies. Like even people talk about like Christianese or any like group having their specific language, and at some point it loses its meaning. This is not a religious problem, this is a human problem, right? That like there's something about uh, words being deprived of their meaning. This is Walker Percy, he says, 
so decrepit and so abused is the language of the Judeo-Christian religions that it takes an effort to salvage them. The very words from the husks and barnacles of meaning which have encrusted them over the centuries. Or else words can become slick as coins, worn thin by usage, and so devalued. One of the tasks of the saint is to renew language, to sing a new song. Language actually has to be recovered. Something that people don't often talk about enough, right? But like the first time, like you're in a relationship and the person says, I love you, like it's like a new dawn has emerged, right? A couple years in, you casually like, I love you, I love you too, and you move on, right? And it's like eating check cereal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's not a dig on check cereal. <laughs> uh, but you see, like there's something interesting about the devaluing of language, and particularly today, we have a like post-Christian society that still uses Christian language, but the words have been devalued. So when a normal person talks about God, they literally picture an angry old man in the sky raining blows down upon humanity, right? Like that's their that's often their understanding of God. It's not the like God is spirit, like Trinitarian God of love, like mutual self-gift, right? One of the difficulties we have is we operate with a language when we don't actually know what the person means by their language. And they don't know what we mean by ours. Anybody that's in a relationship knows real communication is a work. Like it's not it's not an on and off switch, like once you get it, you're done. Like you actually have to like continually work at this is what I actually meant when I said that. Or I didn't mean that, like that was not my intention. I'm sorry that that hurt you, right? In the normal dynamics of a relationship, language is a work. So when language gets devalued and it no longer signifies, people think that they know what's going on when they actually don't. Huge problem. Again, this isn't just a religious problem. This is a human problem. We don't talk about it enough to really understand it. Uh, the commercialization of religiosity Right? There's a great line from Steinbeck's East of Eden, which is just an incredible book. When our food and clothing and housing all are born in the complication of mass production, mass method is bound to get into our thinking and to eliminate all other thinking. In our time, mass or collective production has entered our economics, our politics, and even our religion, so that some nations have substituted the idea of collective for the idea of God. This, in my time, is the danger. There is great tension in the world, tension toward a breaking point, and men are unhappy and confused. I think you wrote that in the 50s. Uh, I could be wrong on that. When religion becomes a product, when it becomes uh, like uh, yeah, a product to use to like sell Christianity, when it's lived in that way, or when we're using salesmanship tactics to spread the faith, uh, it immediately becomes a reduction because it's not the same thing as the gift of love, right? A salesman doesn't treat you the same way as a spouse or a father does, right? So when, when Christianity is lived or packaged as something that is sold, it immediately reduces it to the experience of something transactional. And people receive it in that way, right? I'm being sold something, so what's the catch? There's no such thing as a free lunch. I'm not stopping. <laughs> so... That, that, I recognize that was a lot, but you see how all of those things together build up to this point where like, the modern person is existentially lost and doesn't know where to go, and like structured religion, specifically like Catholicism or like mainstream Christianity, seems like a step back instead of a way forward. Right? 
that is like Albert Camus' journals. Uh, it's so interesting. He's basically like, what we're doing isn't working, but I can't like go back in time to Catholicism. He reconsidered it towards the end of his life, but his answer was actually ultimately like absurdism, which is like the tragedy of the novel The Stranger, right? It's almost to like use being to go against being. And yeah, I don't want to go into that. Um, <laughs> what this does though at the end of the day is create like a loneliness and a boredom. Like those are the great things of today. Um, there's this really incredible part of Walker Percy's Lost in the Cosmos where he's basically like science and technology dazzled us and promised all of these things and yet the chief experience of the northeastern modern man is boredom, is disappointment. Like all of these things are disappointing. Like that's the chief experience. And then out of that comes a sense of meaninglessness and a malaise that nobody knows what to do. And then a loss of energy in front of life. This is Pavese, he says, Cesare Pavese, nothing is more bitter than the dawn of a day in which nothing will happen. Nothing is more bitter than uselessness. Like the real problem is actually meaning, right? Uh, this is Flannery O'Connor, she says, at its best our age is one of searchers and sojourners, and at its worst it's domesticated despair and lived quite comfortably with it. So she says, the best of our age, the best that it's offering, are people that are genuinely seeking, that are looking for something, right? But that's the best that we have. And then at the worst, we've domesticated despair and gotten comfortable with it, meaning distraction. We just distract ourselves. Every culture offers a proposal, right? Is this a sufficient proposal? But I hope that this makes clear, like in front of uh, people that aren't religious or struggle with organized religion or all of these things, how it actually like makes a lot of sense, right? I hope we can look at others actually with a great understanding and sympathy. I just read a lot of things. Uh, like there's a lot going on uh, and, and that really muddies the waters and makes things super complicated. Okay. What if I just ended the talk? <laughs> so, in front of all of that, like the real interesting question is, is like, what are we called to do in front of it? There's this really beautiful, I can't remember what the talk was, but uh, Luigi Giussani was talking, Monsignor Luigi Giussani was talking about, like, when all of these things are happening, like, the time of the person has arrived. The time of the person has arrived, meaning, in front of all of this, this is actually one of the most beautiful times to be a Christian and a Catholic because what we live can actually be incredibly healing and a balm for the world. This is the experience of Walker Percy. Walker Percy, who he's a, a Southern Catholic writer, but he was a man who actually like experienced a ton of dead ends in his life. Uh, he came from a family of, of depressives. Uh, his, his mother, or his father and his grandfather like, took their own lives, and probably his mother as well, we're not sure. Uh, and he ended up living with his, his uncle Will. Will. Will Percy was a Southern Stoic, an attorney, part of the like Southern intellectual movement. Hemingway would get drunk at their tennis courts, all of this stuff. And Walker Percy like recognized all of these dead ends in his life. He ended up going to med school, uh, and he would also like watch a lot of movies. This is like the sixth, like oh no, this before the sixth, but like movies have become really, really big. He would just go and watch movies all the time. Uh, and he experienced all of these dead ends. The dead end of Southern stoicism, of this just like keep a like keep a tough, like just be tough and keep going. He saw the dead end of like some of the religious fundamentalism, that it didn't answer the greater complexities of life, of like the intellect, 
He saw the dead end of consumerism, that uh, it left one like hollow and empty. He saw the, the dead end of science. He says that science could answer every problem except the scientist himself. Or what does one do at three in the afternoon? Uh, this was his question. He, was a he became a pathologist. So he ended up contracting tuberculosis and had to take the rest cure. And during that time while resting, he was reading a lot of like Kierkegaard, listening to operas, reading all of these things, and trying to figure out, is there a new way to start over? Is there something that is not a dead end? He did three things. He married the woman he loved, he moved to Louisiana, and he converted to Catholicism. Three, like, pretty good things. Uh, but like he found a, a starting point. He found a place to start that like answered the problem of life and gave him a direction forward. Uh, and I've, I've been so interested and struck by him because he followed all of the dead ends, right? And even in our position in front of others of like the inadequacy of certain positions in life, it's not meant to be a point of judgment of the person, but like is that working out for you? Does it work? You're following this, does it work? I love in like some of the recovery from addiction language that question of like, how's that working out for you? Is it working? Like does it give what it promises? Like that's the question, right? Um, so I think that this is actually a beautiful time to live the faith because it can be so healing and healing of what is deeply human. And so to go back to the beginning, right? The beginning of the Gospel of John when uh, something happens of John the Baptist, like everybody going out to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist pointing at a random guy and saying, behold the Lamb of God. And Andrew and John following that pointing, and we'll get back to that, of like the following the sign. Uh, but they follow the pointing and say, teacher, where are you staying? He says, come and see. Come and stay with me. Come and verify what you see. And it, it says very clearly, it was four in the afternoon, and they said, we have met the Messiah. There's something deeply human about that. That the way that God saves us is by becoming man. By living a, like, like the, the vehicle of the divine is the human. That, like, is his method. He actually came to save what is human. Catholicism, the church, is a life. It is a life. It is the relationship with a person. And that implies everything else behind it. But it's actually meant to be something integrating and healing, and actually healing of the whole person. Uh, Marius Victorinus, the Roman rhetorician, says, when I encountered Christ, I discovered myself a man. I met my humanity. Like I, when I encountered Christ, I discovered myself a man. He makes life more life. That is the crucial thing of this. Is like He is both a person and a path, a way forward, a proposal. What do I do now? Come with me. Come and do these things. In the Acts of the Apostles, the, the apostles were, like, they gathered in a place. Everybody knew, you read this in the Acts of the Apostles, everybody knew, they, it said they were afraid to approach the Christians, but knew they gathered at Solomon's portico. It was a place, and it was a proposal, right? This thing of, of a person and a path is crucial, right? We need a proposal, we need a direction, and we need a person. We need someone to walk with us, to accompany us. And often, even the way that we live, like catechesis or live the faith, is almost like, let me explain to you these things. Or, and I do this all the time, though, of like, read this book. You know, it's not that simple, right? That's not God's method. He became man. But there is this aspect of walking with us. 
There's a story I really love of uh, Ratzinger, uh, Benedict writes about this in uh, I think Truth Intolerance. No, uh, anyway, in something. Uh, Many Religions, One Covenant, he writes about it. Uh, and he talks about how Augustine, Saint Augustine, the great saint, he had this profound experience of the beauty of something in the rhetoric of Cicero and all of these guys. He's like, all right, there's something more to life. He reads the Bible by himself for the first time, and he's horrified by it. He thinks it's barbaric and crude. He thought it was like more crude than Cicero. And he was also kind of irritated by the religiosity of his mother, Monica, who was a great saint, you know? But sometimes, like, uh, <laughs> like he was horrified by it. And Ratzinger says he needed to meet a man. He needed to meet Ambrose. Like, he needed to meet someone who lived these things in his own flesh and blood and articulated them. And Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan, uh, Augustine would go to the church and listen to him preach. And today, Augustine is one of the, the greatest like, scripture scholars that we have, and one of the great saints of the church. Who doesn't know Augustine, you know? But it wasn't just a problem of the Bible, of the Bible, right? It was like he needed to be a saint. He needed to be Ambrose. This point is really, really crucial. So uh, the first thing of this is um, the nature of revelation. And by that, I mean we have to understand what revelation is. Christianity is an event. It's something that happens. Even before it's a system of thought, it's something that happens to you. Like something unexpected that comes crashing into your life. There's a big difference between a system of thought and something that happens, right? Uh, I had a wedding this past weekend, and they, they had met in chemistry class at Georgia Tech, and like they had no idea on that day that it would be one of like the most important days of their life. But it was an event. It was something that happened that changed life, right? It was something that came crashing in. We celebrate on Christmas is like God like being born, right? Like God being like the baby being born, right? Like God, the word becoming flesh. Uh, like that, like uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins calls it, infinity dwindled to infancy. Uh, like that God becomes experienceable in the face of that baby, in the face of that child. One who is encountered, one who is met, and then this changes you and shakes you up. Revelation is a different form of knowledge. And by that I mean there are certain things I can know about you through pure observation alone. Like that I, I can observe and know. But there's certain things I can't know. Like what like your deepest loves are, your favorite memories, the thing that makes you laugh the most, what you're thinking right now. I can only know that if you reveal it to me, if you open your mouth and utter it. And really, the only way I can like know for sure uh, whether or not it's true is like whether or not like you are a trustworthy person. So it involves reason, but it's a lot of trust in the person. When we talk about revelation, it is God who, like the mystery, that something, that whatever, who utters something, the word, reveals himself to us. And it takes the form of revelation in the sense of like one's heart being revealed. Christ is the revelation of who God is. And this is a different form of knowing than pure like reason. It's something that happens. It's something that comes crashing in. And that's something the world like genuinely doesn't understand, right? Um, there's a beautiful line from uh, Pope Benedict. He says, uh, and this is the, the that answers the question of the arrogance, because I think that's a really fair question. He says, 
This question immediately arises, how can one have the truth? This is intolerance. Today, the idea of truth and that of intolerance are almost completely fused. And so we no longer dare to believe in the truth or to speak of the truth. It seems to be far away. It seems something better not to refer to. No one can say, I have the truth. This is the, this is the objection raised. And rightly so, no one can have the truth. It is the truth that possesses us. It is a living thing. We do not possess it, but are held by it. Only if we allow ourselves to be guided and moved by the truth do we remain in it. Only if we are with it and in it, pilgrims of truth, then it is in us and for us. I think that we need to learn anew about not having the truth, just as no one can say, I have children. They are not our possession, they are a gift. And as a gift from God, they are given to us as a responsibility. So we cannot say, I have the truth, but the truth came to us and impels us. We must learn to be moved and led by it. And then it will shine again if the truth itself leads us and penetrates us. One of the biggest things I would say is um, like living the faith as gratitude. We have met something beautiful, right? That is very different than the arrogance of like, I'm right, you're wrong, get with the program, right? It's we have met something beautiful and I yearn for you to like meet what I have met. And that life itself poses this question that opens one up to any of us meeting something beautiful insofar as we are open to it and adhere to it. That's the other part of this is, uh, one, one, the problem of recognition. We often like have the moment of recognizing the beautiful thing, right? Everybody I talk to, when you really sift through their experience, they've had some sort of experience of God, of being loved. The fascinating thing is that we can have that experience and still not believe by bracketing it away or pretending it didn't happen, which is like uh, like partitioning your brain. It's a wild thing that we can do that, right? This is the experience of John 6, of the people that experience the miracle of the loaves. They experience a bona fide miracle. And the next day when Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall not have life within you, they're like, he's crazy, I'm out, and they did but in that, they don't explain what happened the day before with the miracle, right? There's a contradiction there that is super interesting. And we tend to actually do this. Like many people that drift away from the faith, they almost have to censor a part of themselves in order to do that. But again, all the things that we talked about, it often like makes sense. Uh, so one, this thing of the sign, something that happens. Like, Jesus is the, the sign, right? But these moments in life that awaken us or stir something within us. But then the second problem is adhering to it or following it. This is the thing I've been trying to, like, wrap my brain around and really understand. Of I think, like, this is actually the gap that I see for a lot of people is, uh, and the analogy I've been using is, if you're lost in the woods and you see a sign that says campsite three miles, you are no longer lost insofar as you follow that sign. But if you're in the woods and you see a sign that says camp, campsite three miles and you say, that's weird, paint on a board, you're still lost, right? Like the sign didn't signify for you. You didn't follow it. And the fascinating thing is in reducing the sign to appearances, people have an experience of something, even a simplicity of I go to mass and afterwards I feel a great peace. And then next Sunday it's like, do I go to mass again? Eh, I'm not feeling it, right? And it's like the sign no longer signified, huh, maybe there's something here that I should follow. But the thing that I, was, I think 
figuring out is part of what causes this is, again, like reality being mediated, that we are so distant from things that it's hard for us to make a full yes. It's hard for us to commit. Beauty is meant to be like meeting an incredible person and you're like, I think like there's something there. I have to learn their name. I have to get their number. Like I have to spend time with them. And that implies risk, time, nervousness, intimacy, vulnerability, all of these things. And then there's the beauty of a painting where you see a painting and you're like, that's beautiful and you move on. There's something about like the way we live where the encounter with religiosity, with something that leads you to something more, becomes the painting instead of the person. It's a painting of Beatrice instead of Beatrice, who moves Dante's heart. So part of what we're called to do is the, be the first ones to follow and understand what it means to follow the sign. Meaning the way that God, the mystery, reveals himself to us, and then he can reveal himself to us, and he has. The great prejudice of modernity is that the mystery God can't reveal himself, or he hasn't, or is he won't. That's like telling you you're about to share something about your heart, and I'm like, basically, because it's from your thoughts, and I can't know whether or not it's true, I'm not going to believe it which would ruin the relationship between us. It'd also be a weird thing to say, right? Uh, that is how the modern world almost is in front of uh, the claim of revelation. So what they need is an Ambrose, someone who lives these things in their own flesh and blood and lives a seriousness in front of life and is taking reality seriously and is asking the questions and is genuinely interested in life and interested in the person. In a world of transactions, like Christ looks at the paralyzed man who felt like a burden and says, like, your sins are forgiven. Like, he looks upon him with genuine affection. The place of encounter will be the one who looks upon another with genuine affection and listens to them. Right? So what we are called to be is, like, saints. And, and uh, sometimes, like, the, the, the saint language is difficult because we think, like, a canonized saint or, like, I need to be like Therese of Lisieux or like... Uh, Francis of Assisi or like St. Benedict who we celebrate today, right? And it's like, no. Uh, the son, there's this great line from, uh, from Monsignor he says, not just disciples who mechanically repeat the words of the master, but sons, sons and daughters in the son. A son is original, meaning they bear the image and likeness of the father in them and yet are themselves. Part of the mystery of Christianity and Catholicism is that like, the Son is like one with the Father, but also the Son is not the Father, right? The mystery of the Trinity. Like our call to be saints, we have such an idea, the modern world has such an idea of it, of holiness as to be a pious robot, right? And you just, like, like that there's no being alive, and that's not what it is, right? And they need to see the variety of it, and they need to see, like, the original, right? The Son is original. Uh, that God actually desires to work through your circumstances and through your flesh and blood. And what it requires is, one, following a path. I have come to, like, uh, I was a fiercely, like, cynical and pretty, like, anti-any structure. It's so funny in my mind that I'm a Catholic and that I'm a priest. <laughs> every time I'm, like, having to, like, enforce rules at the Catholic Center, it, like, is hilarious because I was the one who didn't follow any rules of anything. 
So I'm always like, I get it. Like, I understand why you did that. Yeah, I would have thrown water balloons at that person too, but it's not <laughs> you know? Uh, it's so funny to me. But like, what I have discovered in the faith is a path forward, and a path that actually like saves our humanity, and a true proposal, and something that like actually allows us to appreciate everything more. Um, last thing with this, I know this is a, a, a lot, and then, and I went for too long, but like, um, just two things. One, bad theology, part of like going back to the very beginning of like the religious wars, bad theology hurts people. Bad theology does damage. Uh, when we disagree on things, it's not to be persnickety or to be like, well, according to this, like, that's not what this is. Like, bad theology actually does damage. If you have a God who doesn't believe in reason and can act unreasonably, then he can be violent, right? Bad theology does damage. Like, one that crushes the brain or one that crushes the heart where it's like, just suffer, just go with it, right? Psychologically, super unhealthy, right? There is the cross and there is the resurrection. Uh, bad theology does damage. C.S. Lewis gives a great example of, he's like, if you come upon a starving man, and he's like extremely starving, you may see it, and you're like, oh, I need to help him, and you give him like bread and like thick stuff, like he'll die. He'll die, his body can't take it. Because we didn't know reality properly, we hurt that man, right? Part of like even our wrestling with other ecclesial communities is not just to like get on board, but like, if we have an insufficient theology, it hurts people. It does damage. Part of even when we talk about sin is not a thing of like judgmentalism, but look, we've gone down this road and it's a dead end. So many people's idea of the church is that it's 50 years behind. Like the church needs to get with the times. Uh, my friends and I talk about this a lot with like specific comedians that I, I just find really, I, I find comedians fascinating. But, there's these specific comedians that I talk about a lot, but like they were basically like, like marriage is for suckers. Like we're not going to get married. We've cracked the code. Like it's a miserable thing. Why would anyone do that, right? And they didn't get married in their twenties and thirties, and now they're married in their thirties and forties, and they're so happy and they love it. It's fascinating, and they like so much of their like comedy is about like being married and having kids and how much they love it and all the hilarious things that happen. You discover these guys weren't enlightened. They weren't 20 years ahead. They were 20 years behind. What if modernity isn't light years ahead? What if it's actually behind? And the fact that we are so existentially lost is a sign of that. Then, like the the, the male model that like I hung out with, it's like maybe there's something interesting there. Part of what we're called to do in walking with others is like, all right, what is the proposal? What's the next step? To be like, hey, take the question seriously. What is missing? Like, what do you miss from like the faith that you grew up with? Maybe follow that. If there is something striking you, follow it. Take it seriously. See what it is, right? A person and a proposal, right? That is like kind of how we like cross the divide. Okay, I, I'm sorry. I again went too long. There's, so much here. These are things that I've been like, like sitting with for a really, really long time. So, questions.